0: We don't lose. We either win or we learn. So let's learn from athletes and sports psychology, only here on the People Scientist podcast. You are listening to The People Scientist Hello, my People Scientist army, and welcome back to the People Scientist podcast for episode 126, where I aim to give us some scientific evidence so that we can all become a little bit smarter and a little bit healthier with every episode. How are you doing today? Thank you for inviting me into your day, and I hope I do not disappoint. I hope that today I can provide some new and intriguing findings for you. Now, if you are enjoying the podcast, then please, for me, could you take a moment to rate, subscribe, or leave me a comment? It was interesting doing a podcast because I'm speaking to myself, and I don't always know if you are enjoying the episode or if you get anything from it. So it always means a lot to me when I hear from any of you through any form, whether that be a like, a comment, or a direct message letting me know how you enjoy the topic. So thank you so much to those of you who have already done that, And thank you in advance to anyone that will do that in the future. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, I'm really intrigued by the topic of sports psychology, where athletes are under great pressure, physical stress and competition, high standards, and they still have to perform to their absolute best. Injuries happen, teammates get banned from the game, rules change. How do athletes cope with these ever-changing hardships? And how do they still perform to their absolute optimum? Can we learn from sports psychology and apply these tactics to our own lives, even if we aren't athletes? Yes, we certainly can. And I'm excited to get into that topic today with you. But before we do, let's start off as we always do, with a foregone fact, where I share a scientific finding from long ago. Back in the mid-1800s, scientists were interested in understanding sound waves and the power that they had. For example, a scientist, John Tyndall, was interested in sound and fire. In 1857, he wrote, I throw more power into my voice and now the flame is extinguished. So how does that happen? How could he use his voice to put out the flame? Well, sound travels in waves and these waves are simply variations of pressure, whether those waves happen in solid, liquid, or gas. For example, you ever see the panel on a speaker move with the boom of the sound? The energy moves from particle to particle, repeating high and low pressures. And according to the ideal gas law, temperature, pressure, and volume are all interconnected. So a decrease in pressure might lead to a decrease in temperature, or a transfer of energy or movement of oxygen away from the flame, which might explain how the sound of John Tyndall's voice extinguished the flame. Today, research is going on to create an effective acoustic extinguisher for wildfires, as the wildfires have been impacting the west coast of the United States, and great efforts are being made to to determine how to put out large-scale fires with the greatest efficiency and the least damage. So in the near future, we might just be seeing acoustic fire extinguishers that originated back to findings from 1857. So there we have today's foregone fact. Now let's get into today's core takeaways on what we can learn from the neuroscience and psychology of athletes. The ability to respond positively to setbacks, obstacles, and failures is essential for all of us. Because it is not if, but when we will face hardship. And how we respond to that hardship is what is crucial. Are we going to be shocked and wallow? Or are we going to anticipate it and face the challenge? Now, athletes are an intriguing group to study in this context because they face an incredibly high volume of setbacks, losses, and failures. What got me interested in this topic was when I was watching my favorite hockey team, the Winnipeg Jets, Playing in the playoffs last year. Now the team's assistant captain, Centerman Mark Shifley, was banned from the playoffs for four games because of a penalty for a heavy hit to Jake Evans of the Montreal Canadiens. I remember seeing this shake the team. They wouldn't have their top centerman, their assistant captain, at a time when they really needed him in the playoffs. The morale of the team, the energy seemed to dwindle. In my opinion, they seemed lost. The Winnipeg Jets then lost the next three games to be out of the playoffs. This scenario made me think of sports psychology. Could the team have dealt with this situation better? They were prepared for these types of scenarios. Could psychology have helped here? Like, what if the players were all told this situation could happen? If it does, this is how we should react. And we shouldn't be surprised. Or perhaps other approaches to build up their resilience could have been employed. Could they have performed better or opposed to losing the next three games in a row? I honestly think so. Now, If we aren't athletes, can we learn from sports psychology techniques to better prepare ourselves for tough situations to enhance our resilience? Oh yes, I certainly think so. So how about we get into those details? First, let's talk about some fun neuroscience. Do you think the brains of athletes are different from the brains of non-athletes? Let's get into a study to find out. For example, last year in the journal Human Movement Science, Zhang and colleagues recruited a group of elite-level figure skaters and compared them to their healthy, age-matched, non-athlete controls. The participants had their brain region activity scanned using functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, while at rest. Now, what do you think the scientists found? Well, they noted that the elite ice skating athletes showed higher gray matter volume in certain brain regions, in the posterior cerebellum, the frontal lobe, the temporal lobe, the posterior cingulate, the caudate, and the thalamus. Functional plasticity changes were primarily concentrated in the posterior cerebellar lobe. So these findings are interesting as the cerebellum regulates our physical movement and coordination so it makes sense that the elite ice skaters may have a more developed or active cerebellum. The caudate being of greater volume in athletes versus non-athletes is intriguing. The reason why I say that is because the caudate is important for learning and memory, so we might expect this, but also the caudate is important for motivation and is important in us having a pleasurable feeling that dopamine release that we might get from rewarding things. So perhaps athletes over time develop a neurobiological profile to be more motivated, to learn quickly, and to have a greater high or greater reward from accomplished tasks and wins. Interesting, isn't it? Now we don't know if elite athletes tend to be born this way or if this is developed over time. However, it is more likely that these differences in the brains of the athletes versus the non-athletes is a result of long-term training and adaptation of the brain to the intense physical demands that they place on their body. So can we take anything practical from this if we are a non-athlete? Sure. Physical activity, creating measurable goals for ourselves, and going after those goals are all key features of self-confidence, that may result in neuroplastic changes to our brain over time that are beneficial. And I talk about that a bit in episode 124, if you want to go back and give that a listen. What else can we learn from athletes and their approach? Well, Galley in the International Journal of Sport and Exercise Psychology in 2015 wrote a great review on psychological resilience in athletes. Athletes are a particularly interesting group of individuals to study in the context of resilience. And that is because they face a particularly high amount of failures, rejection, injuries, conflicts, abuse, and incredibly high standards that are placed on them to perform to their highest capability, even in the constant face of setbacks. For example, let's think about it. The top baseball players are still unsuccessful in more than half of their chances to hit the baseball. The top teams in professional sports still lose around 40% of their games. For example, last year, the Tampa Bay Lightning that won the NHL Stanley Cup, how many games do you think they lost? How many failures do you think they had? Well, they were apparently the top of their league, but despite that, they lost 17 games. So they still lost about 30% of their games. The Atlanta Braves won the World Series last year. How many games did they lose? 73. So they lost 45% of their games, but they were still the top of their league. The Bucs won the NBA Finals and still lost 36% of their games. The Super Bowl champs last year, the Buccaneers, still lost 31% of their games. Not only did these teams deal with game losses, they also dealt with injuries, losing players, conflicts, blaming one another, taking responsibilities for mistakes, And yet, despite all of those setbacks, they still performed well enough to be at the top of their league. So the point that I'm trying to make here is that even the top of the leagues, they still fail. They still lose. Losing and failing is normal. We shouldn't be discouraged, nor should we be surprised by it. How about a non-sports reference? As scientists, we also face a large amount of failures. For example, the American Psychological Association reported in 2013 that they reject on average 76% of studies submitted to them. A top science journal, Nature, rejects 60% of the papers submitted to them. Want to know an even more surprising one? A very influential, one of the top scientific journals in the world, the New England Journal of Medicine, their rejection rate? 95%. So they reject 95% of scientific papers and studies submitted to them. That is wild. We as scientists have grants rejected, papers rejected, experiments continually failing. I'm sure in some capacity you might face some similar adversities in your life too. Perhaps it is setbacks in regard to your job, or even job interviews, personal relationships, being a parent, goals that we might set for ourselves that we don't accomplish. For me personally, I feel the hardships of being a scientist and having those failures on a regular basis. Failed experiments, grants rejected, papers rejected. As a dancer, I battle with injuries, pain, challenging choreographies that my mind or body can't get around. But the point is that we shouldn't be taken aback by these setbacks. They are expected. I think the very first step that we can all take and the first tip that I'll give in today's episode, whether we are athletes or not, is this. The question in our mind is not, am I going to face a setback here? The question is, when I face a setback, how am I going to handle it? How we respond to the situations are what is most important. We don't lose. We either win or we learn. This mindset, reframing our mind in this way, in itself, can be very powerful. Because let's think of the opposite. Perhaps you've felt this or you've witnessed someone else do the opposite. Like what if we went through life always hoping for the best, thinking that nothing will go wrong. Then when something does go wrong, we're surprised, we're shocked, we're taken aback, we get upset. Perhaps we think, why does this happen to me? Maybe we take a self-pity approach, maybe we wallow. We get discouraged, and then that is when we really fail, when we don't know how to respond to that challenge. But with this mindset, this new mindset that we propose, the outcome can be different. Maybe we won't be surprised when a challenge arises, because we were expecting it, maybe even prepared for it. We know how to handle it. We learn from it. We grow. We get back up again, and we try. Because as I mentioned in the statistics above, the top people in their league still fail a ton. So let's not fool ourselves into thinking that the top people never lose. They do. But they learn from their losses to be even better. So they're not really losing, are they? Now let's talk a little bit about resilience. Let's first define it, as I'm going to bring up this term a few times in the episode. Resilience is our ability to bounce back from hardships. The Process of Successfully Adapting Despite Challenging Circumstances. I talk about the science of resilience back in episode 39, where I interviewed Dr. Dennis Charney, an expert in the field. He speaks about how resilience is something to be learned. Yes, they are finding that our genetics may play a role in our ability to be resilient. However, our genetics are not our destiny. These findings on genetics and resilience can give us an understanding as to how and why we may feel a certain way in certain situations. Our environment and the decisions we make, though, are more important in our ability to cope with challenges. For example, Dennis Charney goes into suggestions such as finding resilient role models to look up to, having attention control, facing our fears, having supportive communities and social circles, and facing physical challenges through exercise As strategies to be more resilient, and episode thirty nine is a nice complement to this one. If you want to go back and give that a listen, now let's get into some of the studies looking at sports psychology. An important study was published by Seligman back in nineteen ninety. The scientists recruited thirty three competitive swimmers. They had the swimmers compete and told them all that their best event was actually one and a half to five seconds slower than their actual time. The scientists wanted to see how the athletes would respond to that. So the scientists recorded how the swimmers felt about their performance, what their thoughts were, how they processed that information. And then 30 minutes later, the scientists had the swimmers do the competition again. And it turns out that the swimmers that took a more optimistic outlook on their poor performance, if they tried to understand their poor performance with logic and explanation, then they tended to perform better or just as well as their first run whereas people who took a more pessimistic, shocked, surprised, or blaming style or response to their slow time, they performed worse on their second run. So the scientists speculate that taking a logical, open-minded, and optimistic approach to our failures seems to be associated with better performance. So when we meet adversity, if we try to approach it with our higher-order brain regions, using logical thinking, as opposed to our more primitive, emotionally reactive brain regions, then we might have a better outcome. So assessing what could have gone wrong in a factual manner, trying to learn from it, could be a good approach. Fletcher in the journal Psychology of Sport and Exercise in 2012 conducted a landmark study that shaped how sports psychologists view resilience and athletic performance. The scientists interviewed 12 Olympic champions, men and women, about their approach to handling setbacks and what aided in their victories. Their findings indicated that numerous psychological factors were vital in their success. So let's go through those factors. The first one was a positive personality. They noted that the athletes tended to approach the setbacks with optimism and logic, much like I mentioned in the last study. The athletes expected these challenges and did not take self-pity or blame. The second feature was that the athletes had intrinsic motivation. This means that they were able to find a reason to continue within themselves. For example, like, I want to win this challenge so that I can prove to myself that I can be the best in the world. Or I want to do this competition because I love this sport. This is in contrast to extrinsic motivation, which would be, for example, an award for winning. So having some inner goal that is important to you to succeed was essential to their ability to be successful. The third feature. These top athletes displayed metacognition. This means being aware and assessing our own thoughts. Self-awareness. For example, they might think, I know that I feel upset right now about losing. I can feel that emotion, but I know that I will learn from this. So having the awareness of their own thoughts and feelings. The fourth feature of these successful Olympians was confidence. I talk all about the neuroscience of self-confidence in episode 124. How self-confidence is our perceived probability of success that we believe we are capable of being successful at something. This is an important component of self-esteem and achievements. Now, Some strategies to increase self-confidence is to recruit the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex of our brain with making a decision and with planning out how we're going to achieve our goals. So, for example, deciding, I am going to learn from this challenge, and I'm going to do better by carrying out These tasks, like analyzing my performance, stretching better beforehand with this routine, etc. And I go into more strategies on self confidence in episode 124 if you want to give that one a listen. The fifth characteristic of these top Olympians was that they had a keen ability to be focused, they had great attention control. So, what is attention control? That means that they could control what they gave their attention to. In mental health disorders such as depression and anxiety, attention control may be lacking. This may manifest as ruminating on negative things or obsessing over failures. So attention control gives us the ability to say, no, I'm not going to think about that failure or loss or negative aspect. Instead, I'm going to think about learning from this. I'm going to think about And envision how I'm going to be successful. And I talk a bit about attention control in episode 71 where I talk about the neuroscience of meditation. Essentially meditation is an exercise to help us with our attention control and activities like reading a book may also help with our attention control being able to focus on something. Activities that may reduce our attention control could include long periods of time swiping and scrolling through social media as our brain may become more used to constantly changing stimuli. And I go into the details on that topic, the neuroscience of scrolling and swiping through social media, in episode 94. So if that interests you, you can go back to that one. And the last key feature or characteristic that the scientists noted about these top Olympians was that they had a good social support system. This social support system seemed to be beneficial in regard to providing other insights, ideas, outside perspectives, sometimes a distraction, and another source of continued motivation. So these six factors, a positive personality and positive approach to setbacks, intrinsic motivation, metacognition, confidence, focus and attention control, and a support system, appeared to be vital to the Olympians' ability to handle their challenges and to be the best in the world at their sport. Now, scientists have aimed to model these features in athletes in order to promote their resilience and success. For example, Mann in the International Journal of Social Science in 2017 discusses this. In particular, sports psychologists have focused upon positive psychology, so reducing negative features such as pessimism, blaming others, and helplessness. Instead, they try to foster independence, mental toughness, and the notion of self-control. I've brought it many times in this podcast and on my social media the neuroscience technique of affect labeling. I love this technique so much because it is so central to emotional intelligence. It helps us to gain control of our emotional reactivity and helps us instead to bring online our higher order brain regions involved in logical thinking, decision making, and planning. Affect labeling is an example of how athletes and Non-athletes can help reduce thoughts of pessimism, helplessness, negative emotions, and instead to approach these challenges with a logical perspective and with a plan of action. Very briefly, if you haven't heard me speak of the technique affect labeling, this is how it goes. When we feel a negative emotion, for example, like we just experienced a failure, take a deep breath, that counteracts our autonomic response. Second step? Identify the exact emotion we are feeling. Be specific. I feel helpless. I feel discouraged. I feel disappointed. Now the third step is to identify exactly why we feel this way. Again, be specific. I feel this way because I should have gotten a better time on my swim than last time. And I can't understand why. Ah, there's the key. That third step now gives us a target. We performed more slowly. And we don't know why. So let's analyze the situation with a logical perspective. Let's now make a decision on how to do better. Let's make a plan. For example, let's analyze a video of our performance. Let's talk to others. Let me try something different to see if that changes my swim time, etc. All of these tasks are key features of self-confidence, resilience, and successful athletes. So I talked about individual athletes. But how about now in team sports? What attributes do they have that help them to be successful? Can we learn from them? Well, Morgan in the journal Psychology of Sport and Exercise in 2013 wrote about team sports psychology. They have pinpointed four key factors that they think to be important. Number one, that the team has a shared vision. Whether that be a common goal and how they're going to get that goal, essentially a team mission statement. The second is mastery approaches, so they have an anticipated way of learning from their failures or setbacks, like sports teams choosing to analyze the videos of their last game in order to learn what went wrong and what they can do differently next time. This is something just habitual and routine for them, that they know that there's going to be failures and challenges, and they know that this is how they're going to approach it and learn from it. The third feature is that there are caring relationships within the team seems to be an important feature in successful teams. So for example, team building exercises, developing friendships, genuine care for one another. Some teams have guidelines to help create this and foster this. For example, in the NHL, some teams have a rule that when one player is getting married, the whole team is to be invited to the wedding. This, firstly, prevents anyone from being left out, This rule, secondly, promotes a family type of environment among the team. And lastly, it gives an opportunity for the team to have a shared experience outside of the sport. So other rules like that or other exercises might help to create caring relationships within the team. The last key feature of successful teams seems to be collective efficacy, meaning that the team cannot be its best without everyone's contribution. That everyone's skill, input, and level of intelligence. That everyone is vital and necessary. And when someone cannot perform, let's say because of an injury or a penalty, then someone is expected to step up to the plate to fill in and to be there for the team. I remember at the beginning of the episode where I talked about that situation on the Winnipeg Jets last year in the playoffs, where Mark Scheifele was banned from the playoffs for four games and how it seemed to shake the team. In my opinion, from a sports psychology perspective, I think what the Winnipeg Jets lacked was this last key feature, collective efficacy. They didn't know, nor did they prepare properly to be able to handle this type of situation. They didn't necessarily know who could step up to the plate to fill his shoes. They didn't know how to handle that setback, that failure, that challenge. So perhaps in the new seasons, in the next seasons, this is something that they can focus upon. So these four factors in successful sports teams, a shared vision, an anticipated way of dealing with setbacks, caring relationships among the team, and collective efficacy. These can be applied to any team environment and I believe are translatable to us outside of sports. Can you think of a team that you might be a part of currently? Maybe you have a team at work. Maybe you have one within your family unit. Maybe uh, you are a part of a neighborhood community. Could you see how these four factors might be important or practical in your own personal situation? For example, let's translate that to an office work environment. The first key feature, a shared vision. Essentially the goal of your team is that being communicated to your team. Do you have a central goal? And is that goal motivating to your team? Second, mastery approaches. When goals or deadlines are not met, Does every member of your team know know how to handle this? Do you have a routine or a set way to learn from these failures? How are you all going to move forward? Third, caring relationships. Does your team have out-of-work events to help you all connect? Do you have retreats, nights out, or fun challenges? And the last one, collective efficacy. Does everyone in your team feel valued and important? If someone is out sick or struggling with a task... Do other members of the team do their best to pick up and help out? That missing a member from the team is maybe something to expect, and to plan how to handle that should someone be out and need help. These are all key features to a team to have a positive psychology and an increased likelihood for success. So that is the wrap, my people scientist army. The Neuroscience of Athletic Resilience and Sports Psychology. Athletes are a particularly interesting group of individuals to study in the context of resilience as they face a very high amount of setbacks and failures on a regular basis. The top teams in the world still face 30-50% to failure rates. So how do athletes cope with these setbacks to still be the best in the world? Well, characteristics such as a positive personality and a positive approach to these setbacks, having intrinsic motivation, Metacognition, so self awareness of our own thoughts and feelings, having confidence, having good focus and attention control, and a support system seem to be vital in the success of some Olympians. For teams, a shared vision, a set way to handle challenges, having caring relationships among the team, and collective efficacy all seem to be vital to a team's success. Now, going through these physical demands, having continual setbacks and learning from them, seems to be associated with some differences in the brains of athletes, such as larger cerebellums, more volume in the caudate and thalamus brain regions, which very likely contributes to their high level of motivation, their physical prowess, and heightened, rewarding response to winning and succeeding. I hope that we can all take some tidbits from these findings and how we might be able to instill some of these habits and tactics in our own life so that we can have these positive neuroplastic changes to our brain and these better outcomes in when we face these challenges. Now remember, I think the most important thing is to have that frame of mind that we shouldn't be surprised by setbacks. They are a part of life. We should expect them. and It is how we respond to these challenges and these failures that really matters. That is what separates the winners from the rest. We don't lose. We just win or we learn. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to follow me on social media where I share some of the scientific papers that I cite in each episode. If you want to buy me a coffee to say thank you for the show, the links on how to do that are in the description box to the episode. And please, if you have a moment, subscribe, like, or comment so that I know if you're enjoying the show and if you're getting anything from the episode. Now, because of Memorial Day weekend falling on my next podcast release date, I will push back the show to the following week. you can expect and anticipate episode 127 to be launched on June 5th. I hope you all have an awesome few weeks. I can't wait to meet you back here for another fun topic on the People Scientist podcast. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.